3: All trussed up and nowhere to go, believe it or not. Exactly one year ago this day, somebody called Liz Truss became the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And in the lifetime of a lettuce, she was gone. We haven't heard or seen much of her since, although the people in Taiwan have. They put her up for five long days and nights. I wonder what she first saw in the treasure. I mean, the good people of Taiwan. And bathhouse Barry Obama has sex with men and smokes from a crack pipe. I don't know if at the same time or not. At least that's the claim made by an alleged former lover who seems now to have no teeth in his mouth. In his conversation with Tucker Carlson, I suggest that's going to be a big one. The audience, I mean. And, of course, the war drags on. But Prince Andrew's making a comeback. What do you think about that? Well, it's all coming up over the next two hours. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. It is the mother of all talk shows.
4: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
3: Was it all a dream? It seems like it to me now, this mousy adulteress, this mouse who padded around the parliament when I was in it without saying a word or evincing the slightest idea of an idea or any kind of, I don't know, presence, je ne sais quoi, she had none. And yet, to my absolute astonishment, she beat all commerce and became the Prime Minister of Britain. Somebody, a wise acre indeed, uh, put a bet on that the lifetime of a lettuce on a supermarket shelf would be longer than the premiership of Liz Truss. And so, indeed, it was. She didn't even last 40 days as Prime Minister of Britain. Now, I think that made her the shortest living Prime Minister, but that's because the only person shorter was shot dead in the House of Commons. As far as I know, nobody served less time in Number 10 Downing Street than Liz Truss. She'll be remembered if at all, for one thing, she was the last person to see Her Majesty the Queen alive. She called on Her Majesty at the palace, and two days later, Her Majesty was dead. Now, I'm not suggesting anything improper any more than I'm suggesting that the fact that Barack Obama's two chefs have both drowned at an early age in mysterious circumstances, is, well, just one of those coincidences. They're certainly outing Barry Obama, Bathhouse Barry, they call him, uh, now, and I wonder why. Personally speaking, I have not the slightest interest in whom Barack Obama has or does sleep with neither on the physical attributes or lack of them of Michael or Michelle, his good wife, I'm happy to call her. I'm not remotely interested in other people's sex lives as long as they don't do it in front of the children and don't frighten the horses unless you absolutely have to. But the fact that these things are now emerging about Saint Barak has got me suspicious. After all, this man, Larry Summers, I think his name is, who's mysteriously lost all his teeth, uh, has been telling this tale for long enough and no one picked it up. But now everybody's talking about it, as uh, John Voigt might put it in The Midnight Cowboy. I don't know why I said that. Hurry on. The image of this toothless man with uh, St. Barack may or may not be arousing to you. It certainly isn't to me. But I'm wondering if the tectonic plates are shifting. I'm wondering if it's true that St. Barack is the real president of the United States, working Joe Biden from behind, if I can use that term, (laughs) perhaps I shouldn't have, if you get my drift. Perhaps he's the one pulling the strings, strings I said, in the White House. And it's now time to move Joe Biden out. After all, there are only so many embarrassing videos that even the ruling elite in the Democratic Party can possibly imagine will stand them in good stead in the forthcoming election, no matter how many ballot box stuffers they have on the payroll, no matter how many breakdowns in the electronic voting machines they have pre-arranged. It will simply not be credible to anyone. If this man, Joe Biden, were to win another election for another four-year term, Next year in November. That's patently absurd. In fact, in parenthesis, when you look at the brain freezes being suffered by the American political leadership, it is—I mean, if you believed in karma, it is truly karmic. Not only is Joe Biden pinning a medal on a guy—a medal award ceremony yesterday, a hero—and uh, then walking right off the stage as the guy salutes him, before he even has chance to say thanks and before any benediction is said upon the honourable ceremony. The way he walked out and made it clear to me that the man's really not there. Chance the Gardener from Peter Sellers' last film being there was far more compass mentis, cognizant. Of where and what he was, than Joe Biden is demonstrating every single day, every day, even when he's on holiday. Who told them to do that? Who told them to turn up at his beachfront home again this week? He's already spent more than 40% of his presidency on holiday, and there he is again having not visited yet East Palestine that he promised to visit in February of this year and where upwards of 6,000 people still have no clean drinking water because of the crumbling country that this beach, <laughs> beach body is so fond of. He's not Charles Atlas. He's not the six stone weakling getting the sand kicked in his face. He's just a sad old man that is being abused by his own family for money, for fame, for limousines, for the secret service protection. I don't know what it is that they are so desperate to hold on to or maybe. Just maybe it's because at least now he's got the keys to the safe and the secrets that are in the safe might not be safe for anyone in the Biden family. I'm just guessing, just brainstorming, which may have been what Mitch McConnell was doing again in the corridors of power uh, in Washington in the Capitol building for the second time in three weeks in front of every camera in America, the minority leader, the leader of the Republican Party, literally froze on screen for two whole minutes. Now, trust me, in television time, two minutes is an aeon. It is an epoch. And he stood there, his brain completely frozen. Mind you, His doctor looked him over the next day and gave him a clean bill of health, fighting fit, he said. Mitch was. In fact, he's as fit as the President of the United States, and therein lies the problem. The gerontocracy that runs the United States cannot possibly be running the United States. I mean, I know I have a rather low opinion of the ruling elite in the United States, but they cannot be that bad. These people must be there for an other purpose. And it may well be, as I said right at the beginning, that they are getting ready to change the guard. Their problem is a bit like Richard Nixon with Spiro Agnew as his vice president. You remember, famously, he said, "'Nobody's going to shoot me, with this guy next in line. Well, that's the problem that America has now if they're getting ready to put Joe Biden, metaphorically speaking, to sleep, to politically euthanize him. That that means President Kamala Harris. It also means that Kamala gets to pick The next vice president. Yeah. That might be Hillary Clinton. Or it might be Michael Obama. Might even be Barry Obama. It could be anyone. But that anyone is going to have to put Donald Trump out of the game first. Because right at this minute, whether at liberty at large, or behind bars, there is nobody that can stop a second presidency of Donald J. Trump. All the polls are clear. All the crowds are clear. All the vibe on the streets is clear. No one can beat Trump, and therefore, they have to stop him before he gets to the starting gate. They're trying to put him behind bars, even though that does not stop him, though will undoubtedly make campaigning rather more difficult in handcuffs and in an orange jumpsuit. But given the success of that mugshot that you're looking at right now, which has raised him millions of dollars and put him up 5% in the polls, I wouldn't guarantee that the jailhouse pictures would not also boost his fortunes. I think myself, it would be cleaner for them all round if he was terminated with extreme prejudice in the way that they have already done to Jack Kennedy and to his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, as he marched ineluctably towards the White House. I've said this before. I know that Donald Trump has occasionally watched this show Invest your money in a crack Russian protection team now. Hire them, Americans of Russian extraction. Hire them now, Donald, because you cannot trust your Secret Service detail any more than Jack Kennedy was able to trust his. So many things to talk about tonight, and I've perhaps dwelt overly. On trust and Trump and Biden and the gang that couldn't shoot straight in Washington. I should turn to the war. Because you'll have lost track, as I have, the number of game changing military weapons that were first never going to be, and then maybe would be, and then only through a surrogate would be, and then finally by the big powers in NATO, directly delivered to the Kiev gang, which is falling apart. And where, according to the Pentagon itself, $6 billion worth of weapons are unaccounted for, paid for by the American taxpayer and delivered to the gang in Kiev. But the weapons... Just keep on burning. The weapons don't change any game at all. In three months of so called counter offensive, the Ukrainians have recaptured virtually zero territory. But they have lost another 65,000 dead men, some of whom were visited rather nobly by Blinken. Today, in Kiev, in their cemeteries, to which he, Blinken, and his gang in Washington actually consigned them. There was the Abrams tank, which burned like a Roman candle on fireworks night. Then there was the unvanquishable chieftain tank Delivered by the United Kingdom, but not to war zones. Don't want them in war zones. Only in safe areas, like there's any safe areas in the Ukraine. That went up today. It melted in front of our eyes yesterday. It was hit by Russian shells, and it burst into flames, presumably incinerating the crew inside who, poor fools, had believed the propaganda that this tank was impregnable, unvanquishable. The defence secretary, I can hardly believe I'm saying this, Mr. Green, I. E. A. K. A. Grant Shapps, when asked on the radio this morning if would be sending another chieftain to replace it, replied unequivocally, and shortly with the word, "No." It is an utter humiliation to the Western military industrial complex that despite fleecing us all for billions, uncountable billions, record numbers of billions, we don't have a war machine worth speaking of. In Britain, our entire armed forces could comfortably fit into the Aston Villa Football Ground, Villa Park, which I choose as a metaphor because it's not the biggest stadium in Britain. In the United States, generals are parading around in high heels and lipstick. I don't mean the women generals, I mean the male generals. In the United States, they're carefully polishing their pronouns in the way we used to blanco our webbing and our belts. They're polishing their political correctness in the way that we used to shine our boots. As a very knowledgeable man put it on here on moats just the other night, a former colonel, Tony Schaeffer, as he put it, the United States Army could not successfully fight France. And if you knew anything about French martial powers in World War II, you'd realize that is really quite a statement. Quite a statement indeed. So where did all the money go? Where did all those billions, almost a trillion, in the case of the United States, what did it buy? It didn't buy weapons that are any use on the battlefield that's obvious in the armor it will be obvious in the aging long ago discarded F-16s if they ever arrive on the battlefield it's true that the very historic unchanging nuclear tip depleted uranium shells, it's true that they will leave cancer in the ground and in the water and in the children of Ukraine for generations to come, but that's not much to boast about. The truth is, again this evening, Russia is on the advance in the direction of Kupyansk, and the British and American supplied armor is burning on the Ukrainian steppe heavy rains are about to fall this autumn, followed by the winter snows in Ukraine. The government in Kiev is falling apart. The defence minister has been sacked and sent as ambassador to London. The new defence minister was quickly outed on social media, masturbating himself into a camera presumably for others. Uh, to enjoy, if that's the phrase, this gang of thieves, this gang of no marks, this gang of lowlifes in power in Kiev are not much longer for this political world. Be sure of that. If they're not overthrown by their people, they sure as hell are going to be overthrown by their army, which has Begun to vote with its feet in large scale surrenders right across the battlefield, right across the line of control, which is 25% into the territory of Ukraine, but it will not end there. The number of people flying the flag for Ukraine in Western society has fallen faster than a horse drawers, they cannot be found anywhere, anywhere, take a look at your social media, look for the blue and yellow that was once hegemonic on social media, go out in the street with a collecting bucket and collect for more arms to Ukraine and see if you hear a clink, Or two Western politicians, one after the other, are beginning to fall as a result of the economic ruin that they have invited onto their own economies, their own countries in worship of Saint Zelensky, who is no more of a saint than Bathhouse Barry ever was. Much more of this coming up. So I promise you, this is going to be the mother of all talk shows.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
4: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
3: I should have mentioned actually how ready to rumble we are. On Sunday, our show was watched on rumble alone by 141,000 people, which is twice as many people as watched it on YouTube. Do the math. I don't know uh, whether we're being suppressed in one and boosted in the other. I do know that reputedly rumble is far less censorious uh, than uh, YouTube. So give rumble A chance of why, don't you? And if someone explains to me what rumble is, I might even do that myself. We've got our poll running. Has Prince Andrew been redeemed by the royal family? Answer, yes or no. I guess this poll comes out of the truly extraordinary news that all the papers, documents, around Prince Andrew have been locked up for the next 64 years. 64 years. The youngest person watching this right now will be lucky if they're still alive and able to see what it was exactly that Prince Andrew did. And you've got to wonder, is this divine intervention in support of Andrew or is it royal intervention. Have the royals stepped in? After all, they are the law. The law is them. You get prosecuted. You're being prosecuted by King Charles, no less. Not by Rashid Sanook. Has Prince Andrew been redeemed by the royal family? Yes, 38%. Yes, 34%. No, 66%. No, 68%. Uh, You can vote on uh, my Twitter, on my Telegram, t.me forward slash George Galloway, on the YouTube community poll or on this YouTube stream. If you are watching on YouTube, please subscribe to this channel. Please. It's very, very important. It's important algorithmically. It doesn't put a teabag in my cup, but it does change the algorithms. So please, Subscribe to this channel. Press the bell so you can be notified when I'm on air. And give me the thumbs up if indeed you are enjoying the show. Now, our man in Moscow. Well, he's America's man, really. But nonetheless, we regard him as part of our family. He is the journalist, broadcaster, and all-round good egg, Donald Kurta. Who joins us now? Donald, um, the the war drags on, of course, and Blinken is there visiting the war graves now, but they're short of intervention, and you've got to guess that in an election year uh that's not going to happen. It could all go so disastrously wrong. Uh what is the point in the United States continuing to throw? good money after bad at a regime in kiev that seems to be coming apart at the seams
0: well first of all george thanks a lot for having me back on the show i mean i think the real point uh, from the beginning really has not been any sort of ukrainian victory in this conflict it's just been to make this conflict as costly and difficult for russia as possible before the inevitable victory of russia and i think Even the United States understands that. I mean, it's not possible for the the Kiev regime to actually have a a victory against Russia in this conflict, even with all this backing from NATO in terms of weapons and foreign mercenaries that are going uh, to support the Ukrainian military in this conflict. I think the ultimate goal is just to make this as difficult for Russia as as possible, even though we're seeing how the Ukrainian counteroffensive obviously has not met expectations they thought it was going to be more successful than the previous one where ukraine was able to take back some territory in its uh harkov region but we're seeing that it's basically stalled it's it's not as nearly as successful as it was projected by western experts or the ukrainians themselves in fact during this ukrainian counter-offensive we're seeing russian offensives and advances specifically in the Kharkov region of ukraine where Uh, Russian forces are just several kilometers away from the major city of Kupiansk, which is a communications hub between the uh, pro-Ukrainian authorities in Kharkov region with Kiev. I mean, if Russian forces take that town, which it's looking like they're going to, they would have an open shot to the capital of Kharkov region and be able to take back essentially all of the territory that they lost during the uh, first Ukrainian counter uh, counter counteroffensive that we saw last year. Uh so, you know, I mean we've seen limited successes. It looks like uh I'm not really sure what exactly Anthony Blinken hopes to achieve with this trip except, except to maybe try and raise morale among the people that the United States is using for cannon fodder in this conflict against Russia.
3: Yeah, though you'd be in a bad uh, place if you were relying on Anthony Blinken to raise your morale. Uh he has uh, all the charisma of a uh a wet lettuce, as we say. Um, The outgoing defence minister in Kiev, now ambassador to London, could have been worse, uh, but could have been better. Uh, He said that they're spending a hundred million a day uh, in Ukraine on the war. And almost all of that, he said, is coming from overseas, which means it's coming from Uh, from uh, your people and my people and the French people and the Germans and the Slovaks and the French and the Italians and so on. A hundred million a day is a billion every 10 days in a war that is now well over 500 days old. What a waste of money, never mind the blood and the destruction You wonder when the worm's going to turn, don't you?
0: Well, obviously, I completely agree with you that it's a complete waste of money, but that's not even, I I would say that's not even the worst part of it, just throwing money at this uh, war that is obviously unwinnable for Ukraine. But let's think about the fact that uh, billions of dollars of, of Western tax dollars are going to this country that's one of the most corrupt governments. It has one of the most corrupt governments In Europe. And aside from the fact that it's super corrupt and the fact that tons of these weapons that are going to Ukraine as well are going to end up in the hands of terrorists or, you know, radical groups in other places of the world, we can also look at the fact that, you know, it's it's just such a joke that the West is supporting Ukraine on the basis of calling it a democracy when all of the political opposition in ukraine has been banned and also uh, i actually did a report about this today at at, uh, at rt the fact that there was recently an interview uh, in the economist with a the former head of the ukrainian security services and this interview in this interview with the former head of the ukrainian security services he talks about how the SBU or the Ukrainian Security Services—they formed an assassination program back in 2015 when all this was going on with Ukraine's so-called anti-terrorist operation in Donbass. When basically anyone who potentially had uh, some pro-Russian views or didn't even agree with Kiev's political course could have been considered a terrorist, they created this assassination program back in 2015 when they were where where they were organizing and still are organizing. Death squads to kill people in Ukraine that you know are suspected of potentially supporting Russia and just don't agree with uh, Kiev's political course. One example is uh, one mayor who was who was actually a mayor of a town in Ukraine's Kharkov uh, region. He was killed by Ukrainian death squads for being accused of collaborating with the Russians. But he was killed by a car bomb. This is a guy that never took up arms against the Kiev government. He was a civilian. He was a politician and he had pro Russian views. And for that, they killed him by, by a car bombing. It's absolutely crazy that the West continue, continues to uh, call Ukraine a democracy. They talk about potentially integrating Ukraine into the European Union. We've got even uh, one Ukrainian official, the, I think, I think it was the deputy prime minister of European and Euro Atlantic integration saying that they're planning on uh, joining the european union even before the end of uh the ukraine uh, before the end of kiev's conflict with russia which is absolutely an, an absurd thing to suggest especially when like i said we've got this ukrainian government assassinating people who aren't even uh combatants because they're suspected of potentially supporting russia inside ukraine and of course we know about the other instances outside of this official assassination program where, you know, for example, Daria Dugan, a Russian journalist, not a combatant. She was assassinated by the Ukrainian security services. They had uh, several other assassination attempts, like on uh, Priyepin, who was a Russian, pro-Russian writer. You know, they tried, to, they tried to kill him. So it's obvious that the Ukrainian government is carrying out these terrorist acts, assassinations uh, against civilians all the while where like i said before they've banned all their political opposition it's not possible to uh, speak against the government in any official capacity there and we've also got uh, the um the ukrainian uh, actually i forgot specific ah yeah it was the secretary of the national security and defense council of ukraine who was just recently saying that elections could potentially destabilize ukraine Uh, where it is right now in the conflict. So, you know, we're looking at a country that the West is throwing all this money to, calling it a democracy that might not even have elections.
3: Well, uh, I mentioned about the government coming apart at the seams. It's not just the defense secretary that has been sacked and now beginning to talk uh, more freely. But we know that revolutions eat their children. This is a case of the revolution eating its father. Kolomoisky, uh, the billionaire who bankrolled at one and the same time the Nazi Azov Battalion and the then putative Jewish president, Zelensky, he, he, he basically bought the presidency for Zelensky. He invented the television show in which Zelensky played the president of Ukraine. He's now just been arrested by the SBU in Ukraine for the theft of billions of dollars from the Privat Bank. What can you tell us about that?
0: Well, I mean, it's uh, it's not really a surprising situation, because like I said earlier, I mean, Ukraine has, even before this conflict began, been known for corruption scandals. And it's been known to be one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. And, you know, a lot of that money that he was probably uh, siphoning off is just, uh, you know, American and British taxpayer dollars and, and pounds. And this is all uh, you know the the majority of the, for example, military budget at least that the that Ukraine is enjoying right now is uh, pumped up by Western taxpayer dollars. If I remember correctly, even before the uh, before the military operation began, Ukraine's military budget was around five billion dollars, which is uh, very uh, very small in comparison to the uh, total military budget of Russia. And it's only because of this money that is coming from the West into Ukraine and all these weapons that uh, they're able to, you know, continue this to drag out this conflict for as long as possible, which is obviously the goal of the West to hurt Russia. But again, I mean, it's it's really not surprising. And, you know, we don't even know how much other money, how many other corruption scandals are going on, but that the people who are behind them are just good enough at covering it up. And how many of these weapons are being sent to, uh You know, or sold to terrorist groups around the world. We've already heard some officials talking about how some of these Western supplied weapons are ending up in the hands of terrorist groups in Africa. It's already beginning to surface. But the real repercussions of all this money and all these weapons going to Ukraine, they're only really going to show themselves in years in the future, probably when we have another big conflict in God knows where, you know?
3: How is morale in Moscow amongst the Ordinary people are they confident that their country will prevail uh, or is there an anxiety that this has gone on rather longer than some thought it might?
0: Now to be honest, I would say either for most people, probably morale is still high. I mean there's there's nothing really distressing going on in the for the Russians uh, in the conflict right now. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, the Ukrainian counteroffensive so-called counteroffensive is going on when the Russians are actually advancing. So in that respect, uh a lot of people are, you know, still optimistic about it. But I would say the effect, the economic effect that the conflict has had on Russia has been very, very minuscule. And so a lot of people have simply, you know, just got on with their lives. It's not really having a big effect on them. Uh right now, for those who are in in, you know, in the know about politics, many are really thinking about the um, the Black Sea grain deal, because that's what uh, a lot of, you know, Putin recently met with Erdogan. Uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, recently met with uh, Hadan Fikan, uh, uh, Hakan Fidan, actually, his name is, which is the Turkish foreign minister. In, uh, they met in Moscow to discuss this uh, stuff, re- reviving the Uh, black Sea grain deal, potentially, because after all, Russia suspended it because the West didn't fulfill its obligations. They said they were going to lift sanctions on um, Russian exports of fertilizer and food. And that never happened, even though Russia fulfilled its side of the bargain, protecting Ukrainian grain exports, even though the vast majority of it didn't go to the countries that actually need it, which was the whole point of this deal in the first place. But so that's really what a lot of people who are in the know about politics are talking about right now, in Russia, nobody's really worried that uh, the the conflict's going to be lost by by Russia. I mean, things are looking pretty grim for Kiev right now. Uh, of course, there's the the concern about the ruble. Obviously, the ruble has uh, significantly depreciated over the last month or two, but people really are optimistic about it going back. I would say because a lot of it is tied. Uh, not even to structural circumstances connected to the economy, but really the price of the, the international price of oil. Um, and I'm sure when Russia starts to make very significant advances in the conflict, that uh, whole situation is probably going to change as well.
3: Well, and the price of oil rose today uh, above $90 a barrel uh, for the first time in a long time. And that's good news for Russia and for Saudi Arabia for that matter bad news for the rest of us. You do have one benefit that you didn't see coming. Uh, you've got 5 million Ukrainians now living in Russia uh, that uh, basically fled to Russia uh, for, um, for comfort, for safety uh, when the war uh, broke out. But you're now going to get another infusion of those. Because Western European countries are now sending any Ukrainian man between 16 and 60, currently living in Western Europe, sending them back to Ukraine so that they can be drafted and sent to the front line. That's what we call European hospitality. And of course, ironically, therefore, the only place that these men, or 16-year-old boys, or 60-year-old old old men, can be safe from being drafted, is to go to Russia or Belarus, and many of them are right now packing to do just that. So uh, prepare for another large number of Ukrainians seeking shelter and asylum in Russia, Donald.
0: Yeah. And and to be honest, we could say the same about even a lot of the Ukrainian refugees that fled to Europe and the United States as well. I mean, obviously, they've been used as an object of propaganda by the mainstream media covering this refugee crisis, like uh, they're fleeing big, bad Russia. But many of them, I mean, conscription has been in place in Ukraine since the beginning of this, uh, the Russian uh, special military operation. And a lot of people have just been Trying to flee that, they don't want to take part in this uh, war, whether they uh, blame Russia or they, or some. Obviously, some of them blame their own government. I mean, a lot of people still know about what happened in Donbass over the eight years that preceded Russia's military operation. But to say that all of these Ukrainians that fled to the European Union or America are, you know, angry at Russia or something is, is is really distorting the truth. Actually, I even I have one Ukrainian friend who lives in America, who has who is hosting Ukrainian refugees in her own home. And she says that, you know, they're not anti-Russian. They're just they don't want to get a knock on the door by the SBU in the middle of the night and have them, you know, dragged over to become cannon fodder on the front line for a war that they, you know, don't don't believe in. They they don't really necessarily agree with the Kiev government. They don't really have any sort of, uh, you know, hard feelings against Russia either. They just don't want to be sucked into this uh, Ukrainian meat grinder, essentially. So it's also important to understand that, that it's not like uh, that the Ukrainian refugees that even went to the West also don't have sort of one worldview that's anti-Russian, like the Western mainstream media is trying to convince us that they have.
3: Donald Kortar, as always a pleasure to chew the fat with you. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. I'll be right back in a minute. Stay tuned.
4: You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway.
3: It is the professor himself, Simon, in Florida. Welcome back, Simon. Thank you so much, Mr. Galloway, and
2: greetings to all of your worldwide audience. Um, This is a subject that you've already touched very briefly upon with the rising international price of oil but what many people may not have quite um followed was that has been brought about directly by the russians and the saudi arabians and they have done so whilst saudi arabia was hosting a visit by barbara temporary de-escalation leaf and brett mcgurk acting personally on behalf of president Biden trying to achieve the Saudi-Israeli normalization. That was followed up by a personal phone call from the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia to President Putin, in which they confirmed not only the extension of the cuts as the two largest OPEC plus producers for the reduction in their daily oil production all the way through until the end of the year, but also agreed that they were going to take further steps, quote, to stabilise the international oil market, which you can be jolly certain is going to hit most average American and British and Europeans directly in the pocket over the coming months. But they also expressed how um, they wished to further the bilateral relations between the two countries, build upon the economic partnership now available them both being members of BRICS. Now, this is whilst the Americans are very forthrightly trying to get the Saudis to downgrade their relationship with both Chinese, the Russians, and the Iranians. So given that these representatives of President Biden were in the country, in Saudi Arabia, when they did this, and not for the first time But actually for the third time This was an extreme insult To the United States And just today It's been reported In the Tehran Times That when the Turkish Foreign Minister Last weekend Went to go and meet With the Iranians They've actually cobbled together What has been called A peace triangle And a roadmap between Iran, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. And it's being described as one of, the, quote, the most strategic decisions by the authorities of these countries. And even though the public framework is mainly about economics, it's very clearly being indicated now by the Iranians that it's their intent that these um, public rapprochements will in fact extend into all other aspects of the relationships between these three countries which it would appear have privately agreed amongst themselves that they will now be the three power brokers in the Middle East completely excluding the United States and as you and I with the audience's close attention have discussed these huge shifts in the global logistics worldwide and how all the trade routes are being reoriented as Russia has been dislocated from the West. And as the United States has been going through this process of de-risking and or decoupling from China, a little, little railway link called The Sham Lam Che Bazar Rail Link was just started this week. And in the Iranian press, it's describing it as these unique economic opportunities, the north, south and east, west corridor chains can generate more wealth for Iran than oil, than oil. For the whole country of Iran. So this is how important what you and I are trying to explain to people about the significance of these logistical chains. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars per year for decades and entire re of the power relationships in the entire Middle East.
3: You always cheer me up, Simon, and I'm grateful, as always, for your call. Uh, The Saudis uh, had decided, uh, and this was communicated in a call from the Crown Prince to President Putin, Uh, they had uh, decided to continue their cut of one million barrels per day, and the uh, Russian leader confirmed that he would continue the cut of 300,000 barrels per day. Uh, which has immediately forced the price of crude on the Brent uh, index above $90 per barrel uh, for the first time, as long as I can remember, certainly the first time in years, not months. That uh, will be extremely good news uh, for Russia and for Saudi Arabia, and presumably also the other oil-producing, oil-exporting countries, of which Iran is a very significant one, but also the Emirates and Kuwait and Venezuela uh, will all greatly benefit from this huge jump in the uh, price of oil. I'm going to talk later in the show about the huge jump in the price of uranium in Niger. And you ain't going to believe the numbers. I'm going to tell you. His Excellency Tony Kevin uh, was formerly, amongst other things, Australia's ambassador to Poland. We did speak to him a few weeks ago, but it was so short, people were left desperately hoping for more. And of course, down under, it's the middle of the night. So I'm particularly grateful to His Excellency Tony Kevin for joining us again on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, Ambassador, I was robbed of the opportunity of asking you this last time, but this time is even more apposite because the the extradition of your compatriot, Julian Assange, would appear to be absolutely imminent. It looks like uh, the British have failed uh, the cause of freedom, in this case, uh, and it seems like Australia never really got uh, out of the blocks uh, in trying to rescue uh, your own citizen from uh, this trumped-up case, which may very well see him behind bars for the rest of his life. To what do you attribute the Australian government's apparent lackadaisical approach to this?
4: Good to be back on the show, George, and uh, I look forward to a, a longer discussion with you on this and other interesting topics. Um, Assange is Australia's shame. Uh, our shame that we have not effectively done anything to help him over the last few years. Quite the contrary, in fact, we've our governments, both of them, have given surreptitious signals to uh, Britain and America: do what do what you wish with him. Um, you know, we we are really compliant with whatever you do. There, there is a little bit of light in the tunnel. I won't say at the end of the tunnel, but somewhere in the tunnel, there's a multi-party group of Australian MPs going to Washington the next few days to make a last-ditch personal appeal to whoever they can see in the American government to say release the man, end this tragic farce. And that's an important event, I think, even though they are not members of the government, they're backbenchers from different parties, including, interestingly, uh, uh, the former leader of the Nationals Party, Barnaby Joyce, who's um, quite a colourful character. But anyway, it's a a multi-party delegation, and hopefully it, it may achieve something.
3: And yet Australia had this enormous leverage... Uh, it is, as we discussed last time, albeit briefly, the most obedient satrap uh, of the United States, even to the point of self-harm uh, on a spectacular level. I mean, the self-harm Australia has done to itself over China and the whole AUKUS and the and the nuclear submarines and all the rest. You'd think, I mean, I, I was a friend of Bob Hawke. Uh, for my sins and his. Bob would have had his jacket off, over the chair, sleeves rolled up, and like a trade union negotiator as he was, he'd have said, we're doing all this for you, you buggers. You're going to have to do this one thing for us and give us back Julian Assange. They never made any use of this leverage.
4: No, they're a very timid bunch. uh, They're terribly fearful of offending, I guess, Biden and the fanatical um, apparatchiks around Biden. Uh, There's this fear that Australia is very vulnerable to American political manipulation at the domestic level. It's it's a well-founded fear because quite a lot of our political class have been pretty much indoctrinated and subverted by America over the years. And I'm talking about our political class from both major parties. So um, America showed its power when they destroyed the prime ministership of Gough Whitlam. They showed their power again a, a short time later when they put thumbs down on Bill Hayden becoming prime minister at the lead of a victorious Labour Party. And I have to add, George, despite your personal admiration for the man, Bob Hawke was America's choice as Australian Prime Minister, and Bob Hawke went on to do a great deal of work for the Americans in terms of the uh, Let My People Go campaign to get uh, Soviet Jews out of Russia and into Israel. So um, he's, not, he's not the perfect person in my book by any means, but we could set that aside. It's not an important difference in the context we're in now. Um, we do have to... Uh, ask ourselves in Australia, where are we going? And unfortunately, our political class is supine, frightened, compliant. Um, there's there's very little good to see in the Albanese government at the moment, I'm afraid.
3: Sounds a bit like Downing Street. Uh, no, I was making the Bob Hawke point that Bob would never uh, pass up the opportunity to have a good negotiating victory. Uh, He was, uh, of course, on many things, uh, highly deficient. And you have adumbrated some of them I could adumbrate still more. Uh, But the one thing he was, was a trader, was a negotiator. And when you've got a hand like Australia has got, and you're only asking for one thing, uh, to have a journalist released, it's pretty pathetic that they didn't play that hand at all.
4: It's more than pathetic. It's it's shameful. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> there there is so much anger now in Australia outside government circles. There is a growing radical movement. It's still small, but it's very committed, and uh, I, I I feel proud in my own small way to be a part of it. I'm not I'm not much of a person to wave placards at demonstrations. I'm getting a bit old and frail for that. But I try to use my brain and I try to use my pen or my key-punching fingers to make a contribution. And there's more and more of us now. I mean, we have we have some outstanding characters like Caitlin Johnston at Kate Oz on on, on Twitter who, who, who makes a remarkable Wonderful. contribution to the global public. And uh, there are others uh wonderful 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 people so I feel that you know there is a little bit of hope for australia yet we're we're not we're not completely on our backs yet
3: well uh one hopes not of course uh let's turn uh, to the problems that other people have um in ukraine in the last uh seventy two hours The defence minister has been fired and uh, sent to be ambassador at the court of St. James in London. His parting shots were carefully camouflaged uh, but were nonetheless uncomfortable reading for uh, Zelensky. Uh, For example, he talked about the cost uh, of this war, gave a figure that will be hair-raising in the capitals uh, of the countries that are paying the $100 million a day. But the new defense minister wasn't even in post uh, when posts of his predilections uh, were all over uh, social media. Kolomoisky, uh, the man who's been the eminence Greece uh, in the rise and rise of Zelensky the man who funded Zelensky at the same time as funding the Azov Nazi battalions, has now been arrested, charged with theft of billions, I'm talking billions, uh, from uh, Privat Bank. Uh, There's every sign that things are not hunky-dory in the corridors of power in Kiev. Do you get that sense also?
4: Yes, I do. I mean, the important thing to note about the government in Kiev is that it's not really a government at all. They're a bunch of crooks, basically, on the American payroll, on the Western payroll. They, um, in that sense, the departure of Reznikov and his replacement by this improbable Crimean Tatar um, is, is unimportant because if, if anybody's still running the Ukrainian army, I guess it's illusionary. Uh, the minister for defence is a is a non-job, and Zelensky's job really, apart from its public relations aspects, is a non-job. All the all the decisions are being made in Washington, uh, and uh, and so the only question is, and it's been the question now for weeks, if not months, uh, the Ukrainian so-called government, the Kiev regime, is terminal. Um, but when when is it going to be put out of its misery? And uh, we still don't know the answer to that because I, I have a little metaphor here which will be quite offensive to some people, but I will I will make it because I think it's relevant. The, the regime in Kiev is looking more and more like the administration of the Gaza Strip in the sense that they are absolutely powerless to resist a vastly technically and in terms of manpower superior Israeli defense force. Every now and then they they boil over and they do something stupid and wasteful of lives, and the retaliation is swift and brutal. And then there's peace for a while, and then it, it all comes back again because there's this rage to, if you like, strike out for what they feel is their cause. And so the bloodletting the blood continues very much on one side. That might be Ukraine's future for quite a while because even though everybody knows the Ukrainian army's defeated that they can't mount any more offensives that they don't have the trained manpower to do it they're just sitting back and licking their wounds meanwhile the Russian army sits behind its incredibly strong fortifications with its cracked troops ready to go whenever the order comes from Moscow to go it, it's a it's an amazing situation because we have a, a total defeat of Kiev already but you know, like the black knight in Monty Python, this this uh, legless rolling creature in the ground uh, keeps rolling around and saying, "Have at you, have at you." It's only a flesh wound. I mean, this is this is Ukraine today. It's terribly sad. I mean, one one last the metaphor, but the situation is terribly sad for the people of Ukraine. And uh, how's it going to end? Well, there are, there are several ways it
3: could well, end. Well, that's uh, um, uh, yeah. Uh, well, that's my next question uh, to you, but before before we get to that, and sparked by what you uh, said, as all of this was not just predictable, but was predicted, including by me, once this whole thing began, and by many people more eminent and qualified than me, uh, it begs the question, are we ruled by fools or by knaves? Fools if they didn't know that it would end this way. Knaves if they did know, but nonetheless pressed on regardless. What's your take on that?
4: They, they didn't know. They did know that Ukraine was vastly outnumbered and outclassed from the very beginning, but they somehow believed in this American dream that um, we're the good guys, shazam, shazam, somehow we will come through this. They, they, they lived on vain hope. And no, because essentially they don't care. However much Ukraine suffers, it's essentially going to be part of the Russian world anyway. So the more it enters into the Russian world, wounded and damaged, uh, the happier they are basically. And this is the ruthlessness of these people. And, you know, one has to go back to the, the treatment of the, uh, American African slave population, to the treatment of, um, the indigenous, um, American native, Native Americans, the, to the treatment of the Philippines in the 1890s of Cuba. The, these are a ruthless imperialist elite and they, I think they're very like the Romans, actually. I've been reading a lot about the Roman Empire lately. There is this sense of self-worth, this um, implacable determination to prevail, um, this sense that we are better than other people, and we can either cajole, bribe, or beat them into submission for as long as we wish. Uh, The Ukraine war has become symbolic of a much larger issue, of course, which is the issue of the revolt of the the global south and leading countries like Russia and China against this awful hegemony. And uh, so we're living in the most historic moment, but poor Ukraine is at the fulcrum of it.
3: Let me put to you finally, Ambassador, the question in a way you put to me, the penultimate question. Uh, of how is this all going to end? Um, I thought in the beginning it would end in the p- partition of the country along the river Dnipro, but as uh, the months have gone by and the uh, the level of commitment of the Russians has grown and grown, and the popular support at home I no longer believe that that would be regarded by the Russian public and by the military itself as a sufficient uh, gain for all the pain uh, that has been caused and indeed endured. And that therefore it is now much more likely that the partition, if indeed there is a partition at all, uh, will have to include the entire Uh, coast uh, of the south of Ukraine and, of course, including the historic city of Odessa. I no longer see any ending to this war without Odessa becoming once again a Russian city, Uh, leaving a rump, stump, landlocked entity in the west of Ukraine, which would then be, at the very least, vulnerable to incursion by the uh, Poles, uh, who have long regarded the western part of Ukraine as being actually part of Poland. What say you?
4: I'll go right back to the beginning of your question. And when I get to the last part, I hope I remember to get to the last part. I want to give you a little anecdote from nameless friends of mine who've been in Russia recently, people of Russian background. What they brought back to me was a, a very strong impression of a resolute and determined Russia which has swung behind uh, the need to prosecute this war to a, to a proper conclusion, not to leave the, the embers which could fan into another war a few years down the track. I agree totally with your view that the idea of a partition down the Dnipro leaving a very strong nationalistic Ukrainian state to the West is, is no longer viable. The only thing that can be left to the West is a weak and neutralized state so that any residual Nazism there will not be politically uh, threatening to the Russian world. Again, things have reached that stage. And I'll I'll give you some some more symptoms of this, some more, if you like, indications of this. My friends who were back in Russia, they were in a rural city, which will be nameless, were struck by the number of fresh graves uh, in the local cemeteries. Now, these were ordinary Russian people, not part of the Moscow or St. Petersburg elite, which so far has been relatively unaffected by uh, the mobilization campaign for various career reasons and so on. But the ordinary people have certainly been going to the front in, in large numbers, and the dead the dead have been coming back. Now, there's a well-accepted figure now of 400,000 uh, Kiev regime dead and 50,000 Russian dead, a one-in-eight ratio. Forget about ratios. Just think about those 50,000 Russian dead. Every one of them loved, cherished with families, with parents, with with wives and children. They're gone, those 50,000. How are the Russians reacting to this? Is there an anti-war movement? Is, are there people saying, we can't go on doing this, this is terrible? No, there isn't, there isn't. There is respect and admiration and love for the families of these dead 50,000 young Russian men. Their their children will grow up in a a welcoming atmosphere of love and respect for what their fathers did. Uh, This is what I'm hearing from my Russian friends. This is not not my invention. There is a, a, a sense that we are a country now which is at war. Our young men are making the ultimate sacrifice in this war. We will never stop respecting and honouring them, and doing what we can to bring this war to a proper end. Now, obviously, that's not the opinion of everybody in Russia. And I was told that there's believed to be a million Russians, not 300,000, who've left the country for one reason or another. Now, not all of them have left formally, as as it were, um, refuseniks who leave the country for good and make a lot of noise about it. A lot of them are living quietly in various parts of the world, in places like Buket and Bali. Um, they're lying low, they're, they're living off their savings, they're waiting for things to get better and then they'll quietly go home. But the point of it is, the people who are left in Russia are the people who are fully committed to, to what is happening. Another indication, I was just reading Maria Zakharova's latest press conference from yesterday and what struck me, I mean, Maria is a pretty strident woman, very, very strong, passionate woman. I've met her at a conference, but she is absolutely implacable these days. When you read her rhetoric, when you read what she says about the war criminals and what they're doing in Ukraine, this, this, this is not the voice of a government that's disposed to, to settle for anything less than a total, uh, resolution of the Ukrainian problem. I didn't say victory deliberately, because Russians don't regard this as a victory. They don't regard the Ukrainians as their their enemy. Even though they're forced to kill them in huge numbers, that's a military necessity for Russians. And it is still not a war for them. It is a a brutal, um, implacable, special military operation, and it will continue to the end. What is the end? I agree with you. It's hard to see Odessa being left within rump Ukraine after all this. And the fact that there were major air raids in the last few days on a on a little river port between Ukraine and Romania. Um, look, I forget the name of it. It's uh, four four letters, but it's a it's a major river port and was a major entry point for Western supplies into Ukraine. Um, that is, of course, the western limit of the Odessa province, and I think Odessa province is definitely going to go to Russia. What will be left of the rump Ukraine, not just territory, but territory under an effective security system which will prevent it ever militarizing itself or being militarized by NATO against Russia again. So we're looking at two parts of the solution. Territorial solution and a political resolution in the area that remains in rump Ukraine. I don't think the Poles will will move in. I, I think they they certainly might speculate about it, but um, if they have a rump Ukraine pretty much neutralised, I, I think they'll close the books on the history and and let it go.
3: Excellency Tony Kevin, it's been fascinating to talk to you at length. And I hope it's not long before we talk again. Thanks for joining us at this early hour Down Under in Australia Fair. Vanessa is in New York. Let's hear from her on Biden and Trump. Vanessa, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you, George. It's, my, it's such an honor. Thank you. Big fan. Uh, you. I'm Thank calling. I, 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 am, I am an American, but I am not a Trump supporter and I'm not a Biden supporter. So I'm coming at this as someone who is looking for serious change. So, But one thing I've noticed is that in uh, 2018, Donald Trump did send out a tweet, and I'm reading it right now, where it says, I am happy to um, lift the ban on ZTE and bring Chinese jobs back to China. ZTE was the um, telecom company that was under the same ban as Huawei, And much to both party chagrin, he did lift those sanctions. And that was days after AP reported that a Chinese company had invested $500 million into an Indonesian resort that is actually now open for business. And it had licensed the Trump brand. And so that is now open for business. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I just...
3: Well, nice, nice work if you can get it.
5: Nice work if you can get it. So my main point is just quid pro quo is run amok. There are no no innocent parties here. Once you're sleeping in the White House, you have dirt all over you.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I think you're absolutely correct, uh, Vanessa. And for the avoidance of doubt, I'm on the same page as you. I'm not a Biden supporter or a Trump supporter. If, If I had a preferential ballot... I'd vote for Robert F. Kennedy, one, uh, Dr. Cornel West, two, uh, Donald Trump, three, and Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, four. That would be where I come from uh, if I had a vote and if it were possible to rank by preference uh, one's choice. And I absolutely agree that Trump is uh, an utterly, totally transactional person and has been all of his life. But at least he never tried to hide that. Biden claims to be the blue-collar guy, the union guy, the labor guy, uh, the guy for black people and other minorities, and it's all a pack of lies, Vanessa. That's my
5: point. 100% on board with you. I've been listening to your show. I'm very happy I found it. I'm only a listener for about... A year and a half now. But I fully agree. I, have, I am, I am well, heartbroken. I'm heartbroken over all of it. But I, I agree. I just thought that was interesting with Huawei coming through with their new phone, which I thought was a, an amazing, it's an incredible win for China. And, um, you know, I, I just hope that we can find a way to work together. That's it all. Is.
3: Thank you, Vanessa. China has triumphed in the war of the semiconductors. They thought that they could put China... Effectively out of the game uh, by sanctioning the semiconductors, many of which are, of course, produced in Taiwan. Uh, what first, what first attracted you to the multi-millionaire Paul Daniels? Uh, his uh, widow was once asked, uh, "What first attracted you to the semiconductor-rich Taiwan, Mrs. Truss?" Uh, Mrs. Pelosi. Uh, but the Chinese have overcome it. The new Huawei 6G, that's 6G, is off and running. China cannot be stopped. It's, it's moving like a train forward. And a Chinese train at that. And blimey, they go fast and They are very efficient indeed. Vanessa in New York, don't be a stranger. I'd love to hear you again. YouTube comments regarding the poll. June Robertson, Andrew does not need to be redeemed. He is a sick man. And Azure Sky says, how's Charlie's 45% pay rise doing? And Paul Metz Cohen says, I imagine Prince Andrew's behavior is not out of the ordinary for the British royal family. I think you're right there, Paul. DW says, "G.G. a year today you were warning of a nuclear war. Should Truss win? Well, she hasn't the power to fire a nuclear weapon. Britain has nuclear weapons, but only the Americans can fire them. Uh, final call, I suppose, is from Chicago, where Mike wants to talk about Donald Trump. Go ahead, Mike. Salutations. Well, well, I wanted to say that I think Trump
4: will win the next election, and he's going to end the Mm -hmm. war in Ukraine in one day. And it's going to be like a parent ending a fight between his six- and his eight-year-old. And it's going to be a terrible peace, really, for both countries. I think that he will let putin declare victory and give him some sort of a military
0: gain and for the ukrainians it's going to be total humiliation
4: everything that anything that they fought for and got land wise on us they are going to automatically lose they're going to see the futility behind everything that they did because i think after that they're going to understand that they were they were
0: scapegoats
3: Well, I agree with you that Trump will uh, end America's support for the war. And I entertain the hope uh, that he will end America's support for NATO and bring it uh, to a close. For NATO is the fundamental problem here. It's why I and Chris Williamson founded uh, No to NATO, No to War, which is going great guns, if you'll forgive the pun, is growing and growing because more and more people can see that it's the very existence of NATO and more particularly its overweening ambition to expand and expand and expand, even hoping to open an office in Tokyo, as far from the North Atlantic as it is possible to go, uh, making deals with Australia. Over nuclear submarines to confront China and so on. Talk about out of area. NATO is the key. I agree that Trump will end U.S. support for the Zelensky regime, but I I don't think he has the power to stop Russia from achieving its goals, uh, which in any case will be long achieved. In my opinion, by the time President Trump comes to office, uh, if indeed that's how it turns out. I wish I had longer uh, to deal with the points that you make and made very well, but I mustn't go over my time this time. I just want to leave you with this thought. The revolutionary government in Niger has just increased the price of uranium that. It exports on the world market to 200 euros per kilogram. It was previously paying, or rather charging, 80 cents. The French were getting Niger's uranium for 80 cents per kilogram. And the world market price is 2 100 euros per kilogram, which is what little Macron will have to pay from now on. You see, it pays to stand up, to stand up for your rights. That's what the people in Niger have done. It remains to be seen if the people in Nigeria will now do the same. I'll be talking about that, I'm sure, on Sunday. If God spares me. God willing, I'll be back on the mothership on Sunday at the earlier time of 7 p.m. UK. I'd like to ask you, as I always ask you, to please bring me one more viewer. There must be a member of your family, a member of your circle, a workmate, a parishioner, who you can persuade to check out the mother of all talk shows. Good night.